You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. When the time of the purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as firstborn male. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have been your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a son that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. And she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Father, you are beautiful and unexpected. Although we're weak and lacking in a lot of knowledge, like we feel like we would know best and would rush in um, with a lot of power and might and so-called wisdom to fix the world. And yet you who are all-powerful, all-knowing, you came into the world as a baby. You came in humbly. You came in quietly. You came in patiently. And to imagine that the creator God of the universe would enter our world as a helpless baby to identify with us in our humanity is mind-boggling. That you came to rescue us from ourselves is almost unbelievable. And so all I can say is thank you. Thank you for the witness of these two people that we learned so much from in Simeon and Anna. And their faithfulness and their persistence and their... Um, looking forward to your coming. At times, I think that we have it easy because we can look back and we know that you've already come, you've already lived your life, you've already died on the cross, you've been resurrected. And yet, in my life, um, it's very apparent that I forget a lot what you've done for us. So thank you for not 
leaving us in our sin. Thank you for loving us enough to not leave us in our sin. Thank you for advocating for us before the Father even now that you're alive in his presence. Thank you for preparing a place for us even now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in uh, 2009, my wife and I moved to Kansas City. We were both from Northeast Arkansas, but in 2009, we moved to Kansas City. And for the very first time in my life, I lived in a city where professional sports were played. I mean, I don't know if you know this. There's no professional teams in Tyronza, Arkansas, though the EPC Warriors of 2004 were pretty dang good. Yeah. So you can imagine my excitement as a, as a big baseball fan. I'm moving to a city where access to go to a baseball game is readily available. And you can also imagine my disappointment that it's the Kansas City Royals who were royally awful. And in 2009, the year that we moved there, the, the Royals finished just 65 and 97. They lost 97 games. And that was an improvement from a couple years before when they had just finished a three-year-in-a-row um, spout where they lost over 100 games every year. So like 97 losses was good for them. We went to our very first game in, I think it was September of 2009, and we bought tickets in the very last row of the upper deck, row ZZ in like section 517 for like $5 each. And there was so few people at the game that we sat probably three rows from the grass. Like it was, nobody wanted to go again. They were terrible. Nobody wanted to be there. For our first four years in Kansas City, the team was atrocious. Really the first five years, because the fifth year they were just mediocre. And then finally in 2014, the Royals did something that they had literally never done in my lifetime. They made the playoffs. It was amazing. They went from trash to they barely made it into the playoffs. And they went on this amazing run. They, they won the wild card in an amazing fashion. They swept the division series. They swept the ALCS. And they got to the World Series. And they came within 90 feet of winning the World Series. But they lost. And then the next year would come around. And from start to finish, the Royals were pretty dang good. And they ended up winning the World Series for the first time in 30 years. So like my entire life at that point. Like I'd never seen them win the World Series. Many, um, I was, I was going to say this, after uh, we got to celebrate that, like it was really, really fun to celebrate them winning this World Series. I have a photo that I'm in. It's a selfie of me. Do you have that? So I'm in that photo. That's 800,000 800, fans. I, uh, you see the, the circle ring there? That's a, a fountain. And I, I'm, yeah, I'm standing, I'm standing in the middle of that fountain. I walked through some water to get to that, that point. The celebration was a glorious, unbelievable sight. I walked four miles to get to that point from where I worked. Many of the fans, many of my friends had waited their entire life for a championship. The anticipation was great as they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And the celebration was jaw-dropping. Now today begins this season of Advent, which we celebrate on the four Sundays that precede Christmas. That's why we start in November. But if you're new with us as a family, you might be asking, what the heck even is Advent? So Advent comes from this old Latin word, Adventus, which just means coming or arrival. And so specifically, the Christmas Advent is a celebration of the arrival of King Jesus. Advent is meant to be a time where we look back on the birth of Jesus in celebration 
for this man who humbly came as a baby. He had been promised to Abraham 2,000 years before he came. And so the anticipation for the Messiah was also great. When Jesus came miraculously as a child through the Virgin Mary, he was born in a barn, you know this story, in the outskirts of Bethlehem. And it looked like just another peasant born in another unimportant country within the great empire of Rome. But that was the incarnation of God in the flesh. And that was the first step to save many from the penalty and chains of sin. And that's an arrival that's worth celebrating for an entire month or for 2,000 years that has been since Jesus came. But not only that, we also, as, as Tim has already said, we also look forward in anticipation because 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, he rose from the tomb and he walked this earth and he ascended to heaven and he left us a promise that he would return one day again and he would make all things finally and fully new again. Pain would be no more. Suffering would be no more. Fear would be no more. Our shackles to sin will be no more. And so why celebrate this for a full month? I mean, you could celebrate that all just on Christmas Day or maybe Christmas week. Why go a full month for that? Well, I think there's three reasons that are specific to me. So maybe they apply to you as well. So first, so we don't rush past this. There's a lot of joy in the air during the month of December and time flies by if we aren't careful. We pack our schedules full of Christmas parties and and for very good reasons. It's not like doing those things are, are bad things, but we get so busy that time just flies by really, really fastly. And so we can become susceptible to getting so fixated on our busy schedule and our, our perfect Christmas photos that we rush past the true reason for Christmas, the true reason for our celebration in these parties. The second while you may be in a position of having a, a ton of fun in your busyness this season, intentionally pausing to reflect on why Christ has come and his eventual return to make all things new can give you the space that you need to reflect on the, the thousands of people in our city alone who are suffering right now. Christmas season can easily be one of your favorite memories. There's a lot of joy but for a lot of people, there's a lot of pain. Uh, for, for an addict especially, this season can bring a lot of loneliness. It can be the downfall of a lot of people's recovery process. So being intentional during Advent allows you to remember others and to love your neighbor as yourself as well. And finally, connected to both of these, if we don't pause to reflect on the, the true reason for the season, as the, the shirts always say, what we're celebrating in Christmas, you'll be tempted to think that this is all about you. It's all about me. And when it's all about you, it's all about your comfort. And you may be susceptible to to seeing your family as merely gift givers who only disappoint you. When it's all about you, it's all about your control and your gatherings become more about the setting being perfect than your family being present. And when it's all about you, it's about your comparisons so that you become judgmental or envious of others when you see their posts on social media about their Christmas season. And so because of this, we celebrate Advent and we do so for a a month. So over the next four weeks, we're going to focus each week on a a different theme in Christmas. You've seen that we light a candle every week. And so the four weeks that we'll walk through are hope, peace, 
joy, and love. And so this week we begin with hope. And I'm sure this is probably true of all four. I think Jared's preaching the rest of them, and he'll probably think this every single time he's preparing. It feels like Advent is all about hope. It's probably the same thing about all about joy and all about love and all about peace as well. But as I was preparing, I was like, I don't know how Advent's about anything but hope. I feel like hope is the whole point. And our hope is based on this Jewish baby that was born 2,000 years ago. Our hope is that what is said about him is true. What he said about himself is true. What he accomplished for us is real. Our hope is that his return really does mean the restoration of all things. To me, Advent is hope. The Bible Project guys, in a video that I believe we sent out via email, they, they do some videos on each of these themes. And in their video about hope, they kind of define hope as this feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. Does that feel right? Paul David Tripp says this. He says, because we're made in God's image, we're hardwired for hope. You and I are always putting our hope in something. If you listen, you'll realize that we communicate with the language of hope all the time. I sure hope it doesn't rain today. I hope she isn't mad at me. I hope they win the championship. I hope they can get along for once. I hope what I've believed proves to be true. I'm persuaded that the language of hope is in our lips so much because we live in a world where hope seems temporary or is often dashed in our work, in our families, as citizens, and in our own personal lives, we all deal with so much broken hope. It's not unusual for the thing in which we willingly placed our hope to fail us. In fact, we get to the place where we're afraid to hope anymore because we're sure we'll be disappointed once again. But we can't stop hoping because God created our lives to be propelled and directed by hope and he meant our capacity for hope to drive us to him. You see, this one word can have a lot of different meanings. I don't know if you observe the English language, but a lot of words mean multiple things. The classic is trunk. Trunk can mean trunk of a tree, trunk of a car, trunk of an elephant. Three wildly different things. Hope, because we use it so flippantly, you probably don't even notice when you use it. It can mean a wide variety of things. Like we can use it nonchalantly. Like, I hope Shadrach doesn't have a long line today. We can use the word when we know the approximate time and result at the end of our waiting, like a Christmas countdown, the Advent calendar thing, right? We know when this is going to end, and often, essentially, we know what's at the end of our waiting. Like, I hope I get what I asked for. We use this word when we don't know the timing or the result. Like, if you've got a diagnosis for cancer, we hope we don't have it. We hope that the treatments take care of it. We hope it doesn't return once it's gone. Many of us are living in the reality of broken hope. We've hoped for a better future, but experience just more of the same or even worse a lot of times. And it can lead many of us to giving up or others just pursuing the next thing, hoping that the next thing will finally satisfy. But Christian hope is different than all these hopes. We have promises of what does lie at the end, which is redemption, restoration, and ultimate healing. We simply don't know the timing. It's kind of like if you are one of those lame people who read the last chapter of a book and you know that all ends well. You just don't know when it's going to get there, how long it's going to take, and what happens 
in the middle. And it's in this type of hope that we see Simeon and Anna in our passage this morning. And so with the time that we have left, I'm just going to make four quick observations about hope that I see in this passage of Simeon and Anna. You'll be glad to know that in my whiteboard in my office, I had eight. I think I had nine at one point, but I decided that's probably a little too long. I don't want to keep preaching until Christmas Day. So uh, if you have your Bible with you again, uh, turn to Luke 2. And we'll walk through this passage uh, little by little together. So in verse 22, it says this. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is after Jesus has been born. They brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. The first observation I have when I look at this text is that hope requires darkness. It it may not be glaringly obvious in this passage, but as Jesus' parents take him into the temple in Jerusalem to follow the customs of Moses' law and offer a sacrifice to purify themselves of their uncleanness, we are reminded of the reality of the presence of sin. According to Moses' law, the mother would bring these two birds. One was completely burned up as a burnt offering and the other sacrificed as a sin offering. And as we begin this Advent season to, to celebrate with a lot of joy this good news of the birth of Jesus, the arrival of our King, we must not run past the implied bad news which necessitated that Jesus come at all, our sin. Without the bad news... Without the darkness, we have no need for hope. If life is only ever good news, if life is only ever light, why would we need hope? Hope requires darkness. And so if you find yourself here this morning feeling like you're in the midst of darkness, feeling like you're struggling, feeling like there is no hope for some reason, it's actually the perfect place to be to hope in our God. Hear what uh, Tish Warren said about hope a few years ago in the New York Times. For Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, that light has come into the darkness. But in the weeks before Christmas, which Christians call Advent, we pause and look with complete honesty at that darkness. I'm all for happiness, eggnog, parties, and corny sweaters. But to rush into Christmas without first taking the time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in our world and our own lives seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. We need space for both grief and joy, light and darkness, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can the weeks before Christmas become deep, rich, and resonant. Not a sacred act of illusion, but a defiant act of hope. Our second observation Uh, is in uh, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I jump down to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Simeon spent his days waiting. Uh, Who knows how long he waited. Anna spent her years waiting and fasting and praying. And so our second observation is that hope implies waiting and persistence. Simeon and Anna's hope was grounded in a steadfast faith that God would be faithful to bring about what he had promised. Their hope was grounded in the steadfast belief that God was worthy of all their time. Simeon and Anna did not pray for a Messiah once or twice, maybe even just once a year. They waited with prayer and fasting. I talked about this passage actually a little bit a few weeks ago when we were preaching on the persistent widow, that we have so much to learn about steadfastness in our prayers because we live in this instant gratification, give it to me now kind of world, and hope implies you got to wait for it. Those royal fans back in Kansas City waited and waited. Now, some fair weather fans didn't wait, and that's why we got tickets for $5 and sat by the grass. But even in that, we're still sitting among a few thousand fans who had had season tickets for three decades since they last won the World Series. We were sitting among season ticket holders who had bought season tickets for the first time when the team was atrocious already. They had waited and waited their whole lives for, for this championship. And all that fandom pales in comparison to a lifelong devotion of someone like Anna. We know very little about her, but we know that she had a rock-solid trust in God that we could all imitate. And I say this knowing that from my own experience and observation that as a people for us, waiting is not easy. We're more and more and more being trained to be impatient on waiting. My sons are experiencing commercials for the first time. We watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and my son was going ballistic every time a commercial came on. And there was a point about 20 minutes in, he was like, this is nothing but commercials. Like, he could not wait. Like, he was, he was waiting to see specific balloons, and they just were not coming soon enough. We don't know how to wait. Lewis Smeads uh, says as much in his book, Standing on the Promises. He says, as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. The difference in our waiting on God compared to a sports fan waiting on a championship is the reality that our hope is based on this eternal high character of God that has proven faithful throughout the history of our world. The joy that came from that World Series, and there was a lot of joy that came from that World Series, it lasted only a few years. In fact, their general manager who felt like he was untouchable because he brought a World Series to the, to the city for the first time in 30 years, he got fired this year. Like, that excitement wears off because it's all temporal. But God is forever glorious. And our time with him, if you're saved by the grace of Jesus, is forever glorious. Our third observation I find in Simeon's song. So it starts in verse 29. It says, So Simeon took 
Jesus in his arms and praise God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, we have a lot of things in this life that we can hope for. And we do. We choose to place our hope in a lot of different things. And these things are all horizontal. You see, these things are also created things. We can place our hope in our family, in our marriages. We can place our hope in our kids, our jobs, our comfort, our pleasure, our house, our car. Like You name it. Like Every one of us have a particular thing that we long for and hope for that is horizontal and created just like we're created. But we're called to have a hope that is directed vertically, not horizontally. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There is something that we grasp at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Now the fool goes on all his life thinking if he only tried another woman, went for a more expensive holiday, whatever it is this time, he really would catch the mysterious something that we're all after. We're all pursuing something horizontally when we're made to pursue something vertically. I got this from a a pastor friend of mine, but when I do weddings, I try to set up uh, the bride and groom. Um, They might forget it a week later, but I try to set them up at least at the very beginning to acknowledge that this person that they're loving and so excited about is not the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. And I have them say to one another, I say, this person you're looking at is not the satisfaction of your deepest longings. They do not have the capacity to do that. And God never intended them to be that for you. And to look to them to be for you, what God alone can be for you, is nothing short of idolatry. And the good news is that this knowledge frees you to look for that satisfaction in the only one who can give it, God, and all that he is for us in Jesus now and forever. And it allows you to see and enjoy one another as the man or woman God created them to be, not the sinful expectations you're tempted to place on them. That works in all kinds of things. Your your job is meant to be enjoyed, but not as an ultimate satisfaction. Your children are definitely meant to be enjoyed, but not as an ultimate satisfaction. We're all tempted to place our hope in these things that surround us, even though they fail us time and time again. It's like how I go to KFC about once every five years, hoping this time it won't fail me, and every single time it is just dog trash. I'm sorry. So you see in Simeon's song that his hope is vertical. It's not horizontal. His hope is in the salvation of the God of the universe. His hope actually seems to be aligned with God's plan for the Messiah, which is to redeem Israel and all the world who believe in Jesus from their sins. It was actually a more common belief, which is what sent Jesus to the, to the cross. One of the reasons that the Messiah was coming to be a military victor who would come and save Israel from Rome. And this is a horizontal hope 
like some temporal circumstantial hope that we won't have some other kingdom over us. We have those types of hopes in our own life as well, right? We want the United States of America to be a free place. That's also a temporal horizontal hope. It's okay to hope in it, but your ultimate hope has to be vertical, not horizontal. Simeon hopes in the God of salvation, and you can hope in this God of salvation as well. So our final observation, and like I said, I had a bunch, but this is the last one. In verse 38, we'll encounter Anna one more time. Um, It says, coming up to them at that very moment, Anna gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In this final verse of our passage this morning, we see that Anna's hope has moved her to action. First, she gives thanks to God just like Simeon did. Her hope is vertical just like him. But we also see her move to sharing this gospel, this good news of this baby. He hasn't even done anything yet. He's just a baby, just like you were a baby. And yet the Spirit of God has revealed to her that this is the Messiah that you've longed for. And so even though he's not done anything to prove it yet, she trusts in God and goes and tells everyone. So hope is evangelistic. When the Royals finally won that World Series in 2015, the city was abuzz for months. I mean, crime was down, joy was up. Emails all went out with the tagline, let's go Royals. Strangers were high-fiving each other on the street. Sports junkies would talk to anyone that would listen about that one specific play that they saw that led to the World Series win. The win of the World Series turned a lot of people into talkers about the thing that brought them joy. And so the thing that brings us joy, like Anna, should move us to be evangelistic about this hope that we have in this baby Jesus who would become the man on the cross for us. When Anna saw God in the flesh, she did not wait until she saw that he really was who God said he was. She didn't keep it to herself. She went out and shared it with those who were also longing for the redemption of Jerusalem. I'm sure many doubted her. Like, why would you believe that? Like, especially if what you think is coming is a military victor. Like, okay, yeah, a baby. Sure, thanks, Anna. But she was faithful to proclaim it. And that's all you can do is own your aspect of this hope and be faithful to proclaim it as well. And so this question, well, this leads us to a question. Do you have a hope like what we see in Anna and Simeon? Do you have a hope in Jesus that allows you to look into the darkness or do you always brush stuff under the rug or only look at joy? Do you have a hope in Jesus that perseveres in the face of waiting or are you just ready to give up? Do you have a hope in Jesus that helps you repent when inevitably, like all of us, your hopes turn horizontal rather than vertical? Do you have a hope in Jesus that leads you to sharing the good news with the world? And if you don't, like, ask yourself, like, are the things in which you are hoping in really satisfying you? Have you found your pursuits of comfort and control, pleasure and power, have you found them to leading you to feeling loved? Because that's what we're all looking for is to feel loved. Or have they led you to feeling lost in this world? 
Have you kept running from thing to thing to thing to finally find what you've been looking for? Or maybe you've just given up trying and live life aimlessly. There's hope for you. There's hope in Jesus for you. And if you're here this morning as well and you say, man, I have trusted in Jesus, but at the same time, my hope is not like Anna and Simeon. And you're like heaping guilt upon yourself right now. Know this, that when Jesus went to the cross for your sins, he also went because he knew in this moment you would doubt him. You knew in this moment you would remember, man, my hopes are all horizontal. He knew that in this moment you would begin to heap shame and guilt upon yourself because you've not been as persistent in praying for his second coming as Anna was praying for his first coming. He knew that and he still went to the cross for you. And there's hope for you today too. And we're about to sing a song entitled Living Hope, which is exactly what Advent and Christmas is all about. I want you to listen to the second verse before they come forward and you're invited to sing with us then. It says, Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope.